in our line of work. Yeah. In my line of work, and yeah. sometimes your line. Of work. <laughs> uh, we travel a lot, and it's not easy actually being away from home when you're filming in different city or for a few months at a time. And I like my family to feel as comfortable as possible. So what do I do? I go on Airbnb. And I look up all of the houses in the areas that I am going to be filming. And mm-hmm. I see if I can find the absolute best house for my family That's when I'm right. working. Actually, I worked in Albuquerque. I have a house in Albuquerque. And I rent it as an Airbnb. You sure do. So there you go. So think about it. Your home sits empty while you're away. Why not have your empty space earn some extra income? Hosting is a lot easier than you might think. You don't need an Airbnb, a whole house. You could just You could just host your spare room. So consider becoming an Airbnb host because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No, no. Sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. (laughs) Sibling rivalry. That's good. So we got an opportunity to talk to our favorite Sanjay Gupta and his brother Sunil Gupta. And we got so excited that we literally just jumped into a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so when, when this episode starts, it's literally it literally goes right into a conversation. Um, yes, and but him and his brother have such like a beautiful relationship, and it's it's um, it was nice to hear them talk about how they haven't had time to talk like that before. You know, I mean, bringing them on was interesting. They got to have a conversation with each other that they haven't had in a long time, and and it was fun to sort of feel that energy back and f- go back and forth with the two of them. It was so great and and during this time during the pandemic Sanjay has been this very comforting educational voice for us about uh coronavirus and and COVID-19 mm-hmm. and and um And they're just both so smart and so in tune and you know, they're so curious in their different in their respective fields. And it's just it's been really it was really fun. I could have I could have talked to them for six hours. I had so many questions. It was really so lovely many. to 
talk to Sanjay and Sunil, get an understanding of how they grew up. And they're a decade apart, 10 years. So quite different upbringings and um, reminiscing about childhood, um, you know, getting into Sanjay's air band where he had, you know, had a band with just all air instruments and like performed across, you know, the greater Michigan area. (laughs) And then like, I mean, so much happens in just a week. So even just to go back from a month, it feels like forever ago. Um, But this we recorded, I would say about a month ago. And, um, and it was just a lovely, wonderful conversation. We loved getting to know the Guptas. Mm-hmm. So here it is, and enjoy this episode. Sunday's been telling me this for a long time when he was trying to get me to eat better. <laughs> yeah. No, Sunil, Sunil like, was a, <laughs> he, was not the, he was not the healthiest kid. You know, and we're, we're, we're 10 years age difference. Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of I was kind of a third parent to him. And uh and and when and then when I was going, you know, getting interested in medicine, I you know, he was sort of my guinea pig. I I'd, I'd try out various things, but he <laughs> Can I tell the story sitting real quick about your your diet? Is that is that okay? Yeah, or? you can tell the story, but just just it, this this will clear up a lot for both of you, Kate Oliver. Like if you're like this guy's weird, <laughs> you have Sanjay to blame. Oh wait, I wasn't going in that direction. <laughs> okay, I was oh, taking a lot of credit. Well, I, 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 I was going that I direction. Want, I want that I was, story. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking credit for your for your, for your exquisite physical and mental health. <laughs> oh right, 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 right. right. Okay, well, go ahead. No, then, but but this one time I was uh, I was home. I was I was home visiting from college, uh, and I guess I was in med school maybe at the time. So Neil, you were, I think you were eight or nine years old. You were young, and I was in college, and. Um, I came home and I was sitting at the kitchen table and I was just sitting there and our parents both worked and Sunil came home from school and, and you know, we were latchkey kids, right? So you come home, you're doing your thing. He didn't know that I was home, but I was sitting at the kitchen table um, watching him. He, he came into the house and mom would stick all the, all the hostess treats like the Twinkies and the King and the, was it the um, King Dongs? Ding dongs, mm-hmm. or those chocolate yeah. ding dongs, oh, yeah, ding dongs, ding dongs, ding dongs. Oh yeah, not that I was not on the, that I'm, yeah, not the <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking about on the right? on the upper upper shelf, the highest shelf of the closet. And so I was sitting there, and, and he came in in a in a tsunami of activity, and threw down his bags, immediately grabbed a chair, and then stacked another chair on top of that. It was it was it looked like he might you know he might fall. Got up on both chairs, reached at the very top of the shelf, and took ta- took down two Twinkies while he's still precariously balanced. Stuffed both of these Twinkies in his mouth, left the wrappers on the top shelf, <laughs> got down. I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid if I said something, I would he, it would jar him and he would fall. <laughs> and then he got down, and he was starting to stack the chairs. And I said, "Hey, Sunil." <laughs> and he had this, he had this twinky frosting still on his mouth. <laughs> I mean, literally, kidden with his hand in the cookie jar. Not but, even. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It was, it was the most, it was the most sort of primal sort of act I think I'd seen of eating. You know, it was just, it was just, he was hungry. It was a, I don't know, it was a comfort food. I think there was, all, it was, it was the mix of of needing the sweetness and the calories and the emotional sort of fix that comes with that. It was, it was just wild for me to watch as an as an older brother of an eight year old kid, and yeah. it made you realize how quickly these things start in life. But you didn't even take the wrappers to to for you. 
your evidence. You left major <laughs> evidence. I mean, <laughs> you that were was, that, that ravenous. <laughs> you didn't care about the consequences. You're like, forget the consequences. I, I need it now. I will leave the rappers right where yes. they are. It made me now, realize a lot about food. probably had a lot to do with Sunday becoming a journalist because he's like, someone should be filming this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh. let's start from the beginning. You are 10 years apart. Hmm. You were born and raised where? Michigan. Michigan for both of us. Um, small town in Michigan. I was born uh, outside of Detroit. Um, parents were auto industry folks and... Um, Sunil was born in Michigan as well. We, we had moved a couple of times by the time Sunil was born, but uh, but a pretty small town as well. Um, all the way, always in southeastern Michigan. I was reading about your mom. What an amazing mm. woman. She's incredible. Yeah. I mean, she really is that person. I mean, I don't know what specifically you read, but whatever you read, I can tell you it's true. I mean, first female you know, engineer, Ford. Yeah. First female the story, the story leading up to that is is like really, really incredible as well. I mean, you know, you, you're talking about a little girl who was a refugee on the border of India and Pakistan, who you know basically grew up with no running water, no electricity, and she does something really remarkable, which is she teaches herself how to read. And the first book that she reads from cover to cover is the biography of Henry Ford. And she decides after reading that book that somehow, some way, she wants to become an engineer at Ford Motor Company. And her parents like get completely behind this dream. They save every penny they have. They get her somehow to America. She gets an education. She went to Oklahoma State University. The day after she graduates, she, get in, she gets in her car. She drives to Detroit. And she basically finds a way to get herself in front of a hiring manager. But there's one big problem because this is the 1960s. And while Ford Motor Company is like in its heyday, this is like Ford versus Ferrari had just happened. And, you know, the auto industry is doing really well. Ford does not have a single woman working as an engineer. And so the guy looks at her, this hiring manager, and he says, we don't have any female engineers working here. And, you know, my mom is at this point in time deflated. She gets up, she's, she's picking up her purse, she's getting ready to walk out of the room. And then all of a sudden she turns around, she looks at the guy and she says, if you don't hire me, then you may never have the benefit of having a woman work here as an engineer. And so this guy ends up getting so inspired with this meeting with my mom, the two of them advocate. And in August, 1967, she becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Oh, wow. that gives me the chill. It's like a movie. This is a story or her yeah. story, you know, I mean, what a beautiful. That's amazing. It was the hidden figure story before Hidden Figures. And, right. You know, there's all, and then there's all the stuff that's baked into that, right? I mean, she was the first woman who attended an all-male engineering college in India. And there was a lot of just sexism and stuff that you had to endure doing that. And, and you know, and it's, and it's funny. I had this conversation with her the other day. Like, that's obviously, like, the, 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 the more subjective obstacles that you, you have to overcome and and how do you like as a woman you know how, how, do, how did you navigate that stuff you know did you did, did you always like push back on everything did you did you uh, take great pride in the moment did you realize how significant it was in the moment that you were the first woman engineer I mean I think about that all the time like even historically now all the things that we're going through 
do, do we always know in the moment that something is so significant? Like in 1918, did they know that 100 years from now they would be talking about what happened with that flu pandemic or was it just something? I think about that with mom all the time. I'll just tell you another thing, Sunil. I was just talking to mom the other day. She told me this quick story I'll tell you, which I think in some ways encapsulates mom. I don't know if you've even heard it, but my nanny, who's my mom's mom, you know, they, they I think when you're living the life of a refugee, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, faith that you need to have in things. You just got to believe that things are going to get better because you got no proof that it will. And so they, they believe in certain things like, like palm reading. And that was a big thing with my nanny, which was surprising because she was a very objectively minded woman. Um, but she believed in palm reading. And, and then she wanted to take my mom, who was a little kid at the time, to go get her palm read to determine whether or not she was going to actually you know, amount to something and they should invest in her and all that stuff. Can you imagine? All based on your palm. Wow. So my mom did not believe in that at all, thought it was hocus pocus. And, and, but she read to find out what they would be looking for. And she took a piece of glass and cut the line in her own palm that she knew would, would reflect what the palmist would look for. Um, now, obviously, they would know that that was a cut. But it was just like the, okay, I don't believe in this at all, but you want to play the game? I will cut my hand as an eight or nine-year-old girl to make you believe that I am that person. That, wow. That's kind of who, wow. who she is. Had you heard that before, Sunil? I had not heard that story. Isn't that incredible? So many, so many parts of the story. That one I had not heard. I know. Wow. I know. I, I, I I've been spending a lot of time talking to mom lately, uh, which is weird because in the middle of a pandemic, I, I, um, I, I feel like in some ways we've become a little bit more connected, strange, but we will do FaceTime calls and she loves to do it. And usually she wants to talk to the girls and the girls get quickly, you know, they're, they're, they're very distractible. And, um, so, but then I just sit there and I talk to her and it's just been these kind of amazing conversations about nothing. Stuff like that. I don't know if you heard this, but the story, the story of how their parents met is pretty amazing. Do you want to mm-hmm. share that with us? So yeah, you, yeah. you 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 give the the story and I and I'll I'll add in some of my little details so, which I've yeah, learned yeah, over yeah, the years. Right, right. Even Ooh. beforehand just typically though was did, uh, there was arranged marriage but that yes. wasn't the case for them for what reason? Right. So well, that's, that's part that's, of it. Okay. Part and of and, the story. and I'll just preface one thing say that the arranged marriages still happen. Yeah. I mean that is still part of the culture. So we're you know now we're talking you know sick 1960s. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it kind of picks up where we left off. Mom ha- is now Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Oh, Kate, you'll appreciate this. Her name at, at this point is Damenti Hingarani. It's kind of a long name, Damenti Hingarani. And so one of the one of the managers said, you know, we might we might want to shorten that, find find a nickname of some sort. And so she comes up with Ronnie. As her yes, yes, I know. Wow, <laughs> Kate, Kate's it's daughter's so name. It's so great. I love. Ronnie it. Hingarani, I, I saw that. Means, I was like, oh my gosh. She, it means queen. And she queen, and she was right. like, she was like, I love the idea of these white guys calling me queen every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make well, me change it, my name. You will call yeah, me queen it, for the rest of your career. Yeah. So Ronnie, m- mom, is 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 um, you know, she is living alone. She's living in the Dearborn area, and again, 1960s. Not not a lot of. Indians, people you know, in our community around, uh, but she had heard that in Ann Arbor there were more there were more Indians hanging out. You know, people went there from the, from the University of Michigan, and so she would you know every once in a while get in her car and drive from Dearborn to Ann Arbor, which was maybe about a forty minute drive. And uh, one day she does that, and her car breaks down right on the outskirts of campus, 
And, uh, and so uh, she walks to a local phone booth because there are phone booths back in that day. And it had one of those wires connecting an actual phone book, one of these big sort of right. phone books. I remember that. So she goes, she goes, she flips to the A's and she thinks of the most common Indian name in the A's that she can think of, which is Agarwal. And she calls up the first Agarwal in the phone book. And guy answers the phone and she's like, hi, is this Mr. Agarwal? And the guy says, no, he's out. This is his roommate. And the guy who answered the phone was my father. <laughs> wow. That's how Isn't that amazing? And then he that helped her, right? Is. He helped her with the car. So he comes yes. Out, well, he take, he damsel and all distress. kinds of things. <laughs> it's damsel in distress. Exactly. Exactly. And how did her, how did their parents react to their coming together? Was it something that was oh. looked down upon because it wasn't arranged, uh, yes. or were they okay with it? It's a good question, no. Kate. Neither well, one add of the parents. Add the, de- add the detail, and then and then we'll we'll, we'll talk about oh, that. Oh, the detail. Okay, this detail is kind of fun. So re- one of the great re- joys that I've had recently, I think, is I've been able to. Um, you know, I, I did this finding your roots sort of thing with my parents. And, uh, you know, we went back to Pakistan and India and wanted to go back to where they met. Uh, this this phone booth, as Neil talked about, which is no longer there, but that corner where it was. And I also knew where my dad lived at that point. And as it turns out that my mom, when he, when she called him, she happened to be calling him and he was in the building right next to this phone booth. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> he asked oh her where she was. And she told him, and he realized that was right outside. No. He was on the third. So he looks down, and as he puts it, he kind of, you know, checked things out first and then decided he would go ahead and... Uh... <laughs> That's, but, but that is so crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. So, so where totally are you? Crazy. Uh, now, I'm, just, I'm, I'm diverting just a little bit, but now, where, do you, where do you go with something like that? D- hmm. Do you believe in coincidences? Is there something bigger at play from a spiritual standpoint, from a energetic, universal, godly, mm. whatever that means to you, standpoint, you know? What do you, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and I'm curious what you think, Sunil. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big coincidence sort of guy. I, I, you know, I guess maybe, and that's not to, you know, I, I just think as a, someone who's a science guy, who's just been sitting in science classes all his life, you know, we're spending all of our time working at the fringes, you know, all, all, the, all the known knowledge is in the middle. Where the real learning happens from is when you ex- when you can explain the fringes of things, the things mm-hmm. that don't f- make perfect sense. So, you know, I mean, the fact that two Indians in the '60s would would somehow connect when there were so few Indians, and and uh, and then even get together, you know, in that way, um, it's not doesn't make any less magical, but it, it's it's not it, it less coincidental. And I think that my my mom and dad were, were from very different parts of India and different backgrounds, so that part made it more challenging for them. I think the magic also came in, in terms of how they ultimately raised us. You know, when you are, when you are the, and I was born in 69, when you're the oldest son of, a, of an Indian family that got together that way, we were very unusual. Mm. There weren't, none of my friend, Indian friends' parents they were all arranged marriages. So the idea that my parents had a love marriage, as we call it, was the arranged mm-hmm. marriage or it was the love marriage, which is an interesting juxtaposition, right? One insinuates that the other is not true, right? There's a lot of arranged marriages that are perfectly lovely marriages, but the love marriage. So then all my friends would be asking my parents for advice on their own relationships as they were going through teenage life and early 20s and deciding if they were going to get married. My parents sort of became that person, and for me too. I mean, there was lots of lots of guidance. So um, I, I think how 
they they how they informed a lot of people around them based on their experience was was pretty was pretty from the research that i've been doing and listening to you it seems like you are a intrigued by causes of phenomena is there a quantum element Mm. to your parents is there a quantum entanglement or something there that yeah is is science based that we just don't know yet i mean are those things that you're interested in Oh, absolutely. No. And, and, and I don't, you know, I, I think the idea of the, the continuous exploration to try and explain things, you know, is, is, is fun. It's joyous. It, it's, it's not, you know, I don't think you're doing it because you're questioning things or, or making them any less significant. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I'm curious as to why certain things happen for sure the way that they do. And like I said, a lot of things you can sort of explain the things that you can't, um, I don't think it means that there's not an explanation. I just think it means you haven't found it yet. And and maybe it, you, I would even take it a step further and say there's some things that maybe you just never find, you never explain. And 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 I think I'm also okay with that. Mm. I don't feel like it's 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 less important because I can't explain it or because I haven't discovered you know the 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 sort of reasoning mechanism behind it. And so the, 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 there's you know the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, as they say in science. But I think what I enjoy a lot is 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 the deep dive, you know, just going really deep into something, just just uh, becoming all consumed with it, and being comfortable with the idea that maybe I won't I won't uh, still fully be able to explain it in the end. But I yeah, might. I mean, we had this, and, we had a conversation. We actually had had a conversation about this maybe a couple of years ago, Sanjay and me, and and I, I think the way that you articulated at the time, which stuck with me, was kind of almost like if, if we believe that all knowledge is in a jar, and right now that jar is maybe half full, so there, there are at least as many unknowns out there as knowns, then, then the question is, do we think that given enough time, you know, thousands upon thousands of years of trying to find that information, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna one day fill the jar? Hmm. And if the it's almost it's almost as if if you believe the answer to that is 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 no, then there's something else. There's 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 a there's a spiritual angle. There's something else that you believe in. If you believe that, given infinite amount of time, with the right minds, we're still not going to be able to fill the jar. Then something else is at play. Mm-hmm. Mm. What about? I love that. It's so true. I love true, that too. It? It's a great analogy. It's infinite. Um, what about mind body? You know, what about someone like a Joe Dispenza, you know, who, who, you know, where are you at with, with that? Because we know that obviously meditation, you know, can scientifically be proven to sort of heal and do things to your brain, you know? Our brain, our brain is a, is a muscle, isn't it? It's like a working, like we can actually work that muscle, which then it speaks to the rest of our body. You know, can do you think you can heal yourself? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I think you 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 can, and and I think that, um, and I and I listened to part of that podcast that you guys did as well on that, and it, it, it's it's really interesting. I've just I just finished writing a book about the brain, the mind body connection. I think is really it's very interesting because I think for we've known this anecdotally to be true for a long time, probably since I started medical school in the late eighties. And then I started my neuro, neurosurgery training in '93. Um, we've known that we we've know, we knew patients who were more optimistic about their recovery were going to do better. 
We, we couldn't, how, there was no term for it. We knew that if I operated, if I took a, um, operated on a brain tumor of somebody and the next day when I went to go see that patient, if she was sitting up in bed with, with her lipstick on already, that she was going to recover more quickly because she, she was optimistic about that. We even knew little things like I stopped shaving hair on patients when I did brain surgery. And those patients always did better because they just felt better. It was nothing different about the operation. So this idea that how you feel, how you approach it uh, changes how you recover, in that case from a disease, but how you optimize yourself continuously, I think is true. I think what has changed over the last several years now is that we can show it mechanistically happening in the body. We can show these neurotransmitters being released in certain ways in certain parts of the brain. We can measure the impact of that on other parts of the body in terms of modulating blood pressure and heart rate and even seeing the speed at which arteries become hard, arteriosclerosis, all of that. It's, it's really, it's, it's quite fascinating because it, it gives you this sense that it's within your control. To, to, to be able to heal yourself. I think, I think the reason most scientists are conservative when they talk about this stuff is because anything that seems like it's minimizing a disease is something that we want to be very mindful of, you know? I mean, when it comes to mental illness, for example, um, you know, this idea that it is within your own mind to, to heal yourself is, is a very tenuous topic, right? There are people who have legitimate neurotransmitter deficiencies and things like that. Obviously, a child who develops cancer, you know, the, no one is suggesting that people can just heal themselves, but they can certainly make a huge impact far greater than I think, you know, we realized even 20, 30 years ago. And it's fascinating. It's, it's, a, it's a, call it the mind-body connection or just call it, you know, it's, it's the human sort of mm-hmm. species that's able to do this. The mind and body have no separation. We don't, we think of it as separate, but there is no separation really when you think of it like that. It feels like we're scratching the surface with this. I mean, it feels like in a hundred years from now, you know, if we can sort of hone in on this and, you know, it, it could shift tremendously, you know? Yeah, we, 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 um, we tend to m- medicalize everything, you know, and I think it goes back in some ways to the fact that if you can measure it, it takes on added significance, right? I th- why is cholesterol so important for heart disease? Because we can measure it. There's probably things like Sunil was saying that are far more important. And we know that, you know, in, in, in uh, uh, my, my parents are a perfect cohort. My dad has three brothers who live in India. My dad lives in the States. As uh, Sunil mentioned, he had heart surgery when he was in his late 40s. His three brothers, genetically pretty much the same as him, um, did not. And now their diet was different to some extent, but I think a lot of it is just how they approach things overall. We, we tend to medicalize things in the United States a great deal. And, and over there, just the lifestyle and everything ended up making a big difference in terms of not having a significant medical problem for basically their entire lives. Mm. That's, that's, uh, you see examples of that all over the place. Now, Oliver, Oliver do you meditate? Uh, I meditate and I medicate. <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah. Yes. No. I, um, so yes, I do. Actually, um, in the last uh, about month, I have gotten back into it. Um, I have been going through anxiety. You know, some anxiety over this time. I, I was. I had acute anxiety in my twenties, like hard hitting eight months of not wanting to leave my house, but mm-hmm. wanting to live a normal life and fighting through it, but throwing up and couldn't breathe. I mean, it was really gnarly. And, but in this last three, in this last five, six weeks, that didn't come back, but just this overall anxious feeling, 
tightness in my throat, tightness in my chest, you know, your my brain starts to spiral a little bit. The difference now is I've been through it and I know that I'm okay. You know, I know that there's nothing medically wrong with me. So I started my meditations again. And the first one I did, I just, first time I, cl- I closed my eyes and just started bawling, hmm. crying out of nowhere, you know, and I just realized that I hadn't gotten quiet with myself in a long, long time and it was necessary. And so I've definitely fixed myself. I've shifted all of that through my meditation and it's almost fun to play with it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I would have these meditations where I would try to just melt everything in my fifth, I think your fifth chakra is your throat <laughs> chakra and it's, it's about expression. And for me, <clears throat> Expression was not an easy thing to do. Being vulnerable, being able to say how I feel, express love, you know, it's been a difficult thing for me in my life. And I'm able to physically feel it melt away through my breath. And it brought a big smile to my face. And I was like, wow, Mm. it's powerful. It works. I can do, I can do this, you know? So yes, I do meditate and I do medicate. I I am on Lexapro as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I was telling Kate about this yoga teacher training that I'm doing right now. And there are so many people in this training that, that, um, that are battling a lot of the same things, Mm -hmm. you know, anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, that, that, um, that, you know, uh, just swear by what they've been able to achieve with meditation, you know, what, what that's brought to them, just the simple kind of coming back to the breath. And I've kind of now, I mean, I'm speaking as I'm some kind of yogi. I'm 30 days into this training, but what, what, I, am, what I am learning, well, what I, I am inspired. Yeah. What, one of the things that I realize is, is like, you know, I thought yoga was all about getting into postures, getting into poses. Like that's what I was going to learn. And what I've learned is something completely different than that. We don't use, um, you know, our body to get into postures. We use postures to get into our body. Mm. Mm-hmm. To make ourselves feel something. It's the difference between the aesthetic and the functional. Like the aesthetic is how you want to look, but the functional is how you want to feel. And ultimately, it's all about that. And that's the thing that I've learned. When, with the breath, like one of the things that this teacher I'm, I'm learning from right now has taught us is that for every pose, what you're trying to do is spend 20% of your time getting into your edge, finding your edge, finding something, that little point that's going to make you feel just a little bit uncomfortable the feeling. And then you're going to spend the rest of that time, the, the other 80% softening around that edge. And that softening is where you get growth, right? You're, you're pushing yourself to a new point, but then finding a way to actually breathe through that, soften through that, that's where you start to develop. It's an interesting, interesting metaphor and practice for actually what's going on right now in the world. I think we have a primal sort of reaction to things, um, all the time, but but the idea that you let it settle in and 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 um, um, you're trusting your instincts, but you're letting your 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 subconscious mind sort of you know reflect over this. I mean, I think that that's maybe in some ways a definition of empathy. I you can tell in conversations that you have with people right away, I, or pretty quickly at least, who is who is going through the motions and who has exactly what you and Sunil are describing. Let, letting you know, letting the edges blur a little bit and and really feeling like you're in that position it's it's i mean that's that's it's been tough i think for for a lot of people to 
and it's such a busy news environment and things are moving so fast and, and, and it does make you anxious. It makes me anxious as you were describing that. My throat was tightening up a bit, Oliver. You know, it's just, it's the same thing. So how do you find the time to just let those edges blur a bit? Um, it's tough, but it's important. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough time to navigate as well because, you know, I think judgment is something that is just natural that we, we judge as an instinct in a way. I don't, it's hard not to sort of, oh, he looks like right. this or she looks like that, just in general. But we are in a time now of sort of high intensity judgment. And sometimes it makes people passive. I think it makes people fearful sometimes to sort of say what they want to say, you know, because if you say the wrong hmm. thing, then we're living in this time of cancellation. You could be canceled, you could be admonished, and your intentions weren't that, but, you know, it, it, walking on eggshells. It's, it's very true. I mean, you know, we certainly see that in the, in the news business as well, like everything from the editorial decisions. But I got to tell you, though, uh, so I have three daughters, uh, 14, 13, and 11, and I was having this conversation with my oldest daughter the other day about this exact topic. And I can just, you know, when we say reflexive creature, the human beings are, I think in part that means that we, we've, we as human beings, lived by being able to quickly recognize threats. We recognize threats and we're able to, and so we are, our threat sort of meters are really tuned up. We saw most things as threats. That's how we stayed alive. Evolved individuals... If you're a truly evolved individual, I don't think you immediately look at the world as a threat or non-threat. You know, you 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 let you 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 apply this this thinking to it, this logic, you know, this judgment, the 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 blurring of the edges, like Sunil was describing, letting that sort of be okay as opposed to binary threat or no threat. And you know, I think even when you look at xenophobia, you look at what's happening now. You know, it's it's primal, reflexive, reactive creatures see the world as threat or no threat. If you are evolved, you're able to 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 get beyond that reflexive part of ourselves. And it's it's I think you're right. It's hard. And, and you're worried that you could get judged because all of a sudden you may be the threat by the way you said something or what exactly you said, even if that wasn't your intent. But I just don't know how we move forward as a human species and sort of in terms of tolerance for one another if we, if we don't stop thinking of ourselves as our most basal beings, you know, just, just primal threat or no threat beings. We have to be like humans. The human species did not succeed without each other. Everyone knows that. It was never about rugged individualism. It was about reciprocal altruism. We succeeded because we took care of each other. And, and strangely enough, it actually felt good to take care of each other. Why would it feel good for me to do something nice for you? That would make no sense from a Darwinian standpoint, right? I should get mine, right? Or my family's. And yet it does. If I do something nice for you, it feels good. That trait was, was selected for and preserved through human race. And that allowed us to succeed. And if we, I think if we run to that as opposed to the threat versus no threat, primal, reflexive, you know, side of our beast, then I think we can, we can move forward. But God, man, it doesn't seem like it right now. Sakara, we love Sakara. We love this food program. You know, if you're looking to change your diet, it's not about like restricting what you eat. It's about the kinds of foods that you eat. It's prepared foods, organic, plant-based. They come to your house. They switch it up every week. Um, it also comes with more than just food. It has supplements and teas, and it really kind of supports your um, 
your whole body. To boost results, try the best-selling metabolism super powder. It's an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, and fatigue, which, you know, I'm in my 40s. I have all of those things. But after, 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 you know, after grinding Sakara, I, I, I can honestly say that it is coming down. I mean, it's clean eating. You know, it's wellness eating. It's, it's, it's eating with a purpose. It's eating with intent. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash sibling or enter code sibling at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash sibling to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash sibling. So growing up, you were, for 10 years, Sanjay, you were an only child, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just you mm-hmm. two. The good old That's days. right. It's just the two of us. <laughs> 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 I enjoyed your, your, your arrival when on the When you were an yeah. only child with your mom and your dad, what, what, is, what was that like? Give us a, mm. a, a glimpse into your 10 years, your decade alone. By the way, that should be the title of maybe one of your next books, My Decade Alone. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh it was a um you know, it was it was a very formative time. I I, I don't know that I would necessarily describe it as a, a, a happy time. Uh, I think it was a very formative time. We we were a um uh, you know, an Indian family living in a very small town in Michigan, very um very almost a little rural, um, very homogenous. There was nobody that looked like us. There was nobody that sounded like us, ate the kinds of foods that we did, prayed to the same gods that we did, anything. It was just totally different, you know, starting with your name, you know. And and so um, I think there was always a sense of wanting to fit in. That's what I think I remember the most about my early life, you know, just, just wanting to my and and i think the same was true for my parents to some extent even though they were very you know grew up in on the other side of the world um they realized in order to succeed you have to fit in and so fitting in became sort of the the name of the game and it was it was you know it's it's all consuming in a way um i had friends you know um but a lot of times i felt like i was the indian friend you know i was the i was the additional friend added to the group because i was indian i it was a little almost and I'm not, this isn't a sob story by any means, you know, um, it, because it, it, saying that it wasn't, not to say happy doesn't mean it was sad. It just, it, it wasn't defined by happiness. I, I think that you, you're a bit of a peculiarity, you know, more than anything else. So that was, that was, you know, up until what's 10, 10 years old is like fourth or fifth grade or something like that, I think. Um, Do you remember was, the time when you realized that, you know, when you were old <laughs> enough to sort of cognitively think, oh. Wow, I, I maybe I'm I'm different than everyone else. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it was it was fairly early, like you know, first or second grade, and I think a lot of times it was just uh, everyone go around and introduce their themselves, you know, and it was mm-hmm. it was everybody was you know Bob, Bill, you know, um, Alan, whatever, and and then my name, and and then it was the you know can you say that again, can you pronounce that again? How do you say that? Butchering the name, you know, and it just it was a source of like your face would flush every time you had to say your name, you know, it was mm-hmm. like something the most basic thing, right? Something Didn't like you that. Change your name to Steve. Yeah, so that was probably the. I, w- I was yeah. Steve was going to. I mean, solve that was an interesting problems. choice. <laughs> I'll tell you why though. It was a good story. You 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 may you you guys may be too young, but my favorite show on television at the time was was the Six Million Dollar Man. 
um, Colonel Lee Majors, Steve Austin. Oh. And, uh, and Steve Austin was, I mean, he was, he was it. And so, and, you know, started with an S. Our names all start with an S. So I had that box checked mm-hmm. as a first or second grader. And I thought that I would just change my name to Steve. If I changed it, then that would solve everything. And I talked to my mom about it. And she, you know, wasn't thrilled with the idea, but actually was fairly okay with it and, and said we could do it. And, and then I realized in retrospect, she was just waiting for me to sort of, come to my own senses and realize that would be silly. That is my name. That, that is my identity. You don't just, you can't just change your identity, you know? Well, Kate, and, uh, Kate went through a phase where she decided to change her name from Kate. It still remained Kate, but she goes, it's not Kate with a K anymore. It's Kate with a C. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> Gary. It was Kate Gary, which was my full name. I, no yeah, more Hudson. Kate Gary. Yeah, it was. Um. Uh. So solves okay. everything, right? Solves everything. Yeah, but 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 I but I um no I I, uh, I it was it was interesting, you know. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to look back uh, at some point and just say about all these these immigrant families at that time. You know, they were some among some of the first immigrants, really, or the a big wave of immigrants in the '60s. What those lives were like, you know, how people assimilated. And, you know, my parents um, did not come to the United States because they were persecuted or prosecuted in search of something. They came here just for education and in uh, a way of life. And so there wasn't a galvanizing force for, for drawing them all together. And as a result, we, we just sort of felt it was like a it was sort of a loose, a looser sort of existence. We were just trying to make our way, I think, in the world. Uh, my parents are incredible people. I mean, incredibly hardworking. They, they, everything they did, they did for us without, without a question. That was just how they were wired. They didn't think about their own lives. They didn't, we didn't take vacations. They worked weekends. I mean, it was, and, and it wasn't like they had to, but anytime they didn't work a weekend, it was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing enough now for my kids. I need to work the weekend, even though we're fine, because then I'm not doing enough for my kids. You know, so that was that was sort of the first first ten years of life. And then, was there uh, a, was there affection? I mean, was it a very loving, yeah. affectionate uh, home? Yeah, I would say it. W- I, I would say it was. If you were to have visited at that time as a friend of mine, you may not have perceived it as such, but it was there. When I when I started dating my now wife, um, she joked around that you know my dad and I would still shake hands every time we see each other. You know, there's no hugs. We didn't even, and my mom and my mom's very affectionate, but we didn't hug. It was not a hugging family. There was no, nothing like that. We called each other. I mean, I called them mom and dad. They called me by my first name. There was no affectionate sort of nicknames and things like that. But, um, now they hug. They've become huggers now, you know, like a lot. <laughs> I mean, with the grandkids, I think, and, mm. and my wife is like, she just, ah, come on, bring it in. You know, you're hugging. And, and so now it's changed. As, did and, you and that's ever, how my kids will remember them. Did you ever feel, though, that you wanted more love or more affection from them? Or was that just what it was? It just felt like it's what it was. I didn't have a okay. lot of context for life. I didn't have right. a lot of friends. So it wasn't like I was going to other people's houses and saying, well, their parents hug. How about you Got guys? Uh, you know, I watched The Six Million Dollar Man. That, that was basically my context yeah. for life outside of, outside of yeah, school. Steve that's, doesn't hug. That's, Steve wasn't a hugger. No, he's not a hugger. <laughs> I don't know anything about The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah. I think oh. it was just past your, your, your uh, time. Because Sunil I and I, were the same was... age. You're 79, well, yeah. right? Or wait, yeah, you're 70, well, are you 80? I'm 79. And yeah. what's interesting is that a lot of this stuff that I probably shouldn't know, I do know. 
because of Sanjay. And the other, th- the, the, the other thing that's interesting about it is that when that happens from somebody who you kind of admire, like you will with a brother who's 10 years older than you, that stuff kind of just sticks with you. So when he moves on, I don't. Mm-hmm. So I'm still kind of into all this, all this stuff. Like, like my friends would get into my car when I was in high school and I'd be playing 80s music because I, Sanjay <laughs> got me into 80s music. And, and like a friend would get into my car and instead of being like, dude, I love this song. He'd be like, dude, my mom loves this song. Oh, that sucks. That, means, that, that basically means you, you might have missed the best era of music, which was the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did kind of float by the Sanjay. 90s because I was so... I know. I took that away from him. Sorry you about did. that, um, he, he was in the 90s. He was in the 90s. I love the 90s. What was, funny, what was funny is that Sanjay... So you guys may not know this. Sanjay, when he was in high school, formed an air band. You know, with an air band? <laughs> an, an air, air band? Like we're ta- we're air instruments? Air all instruments. Yes. Not just air guitar, <laughs> but air drums, air everything. Right? Wow. Even, I'm and lip singing. And of wait, course, lip singing. This is, does, this. is this, wow. are, is this okay, like so, an exclusive? Is this a Sanjay Gupta? This, this might be an exclusive. All the tapes are destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, was it just a silent concert? So it was kind of, so what they would do? What they would do in the background? What they would do? What air instrument they were, they were, did you play? So he. What, I think what Sanjay, sort of music? Sanjay, Sanjay was actually Everything. lead singer of this <laughs> okay. of this band. Yeah. And 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 we did so a lot of Van Halen. There was a was there was a family Roth. right. There was a family. There were there were three brothers, and their last names were Gupta as well. And so Sanjay and this 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 family of three brothers formed a band and get this this creative name of their of their band they named themselves the guptas wow <laughs> and so and so and so literally they would get together in the basement and they would put on 80s music which i still have playing i mean actually if you if you can see my shirt here i don't know if you can see uh, it yeah 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 oh, yes. Yes. pour some sugar on me just like changed my whole <laughs> life and dance moves yeah. but <laughs> they would also do skits skits were part of it too like kind of skits to kind of almost frame the whole thing. Like oh, uh, Rock yeah. of Ages. I remember they did Rock of Ages and like there was a skit before that. Right, but anyway, like the, 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 the thing is, the it, thing is it, my it mom, should have been Gupta to the third power or maybe G3. That, G4, that would have G4, been better. I like that. G4. 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 Right, okay. There's always a reunion. So yeah. my mom my mom would always make Sanjay include me in these things. So <laughs> I was actually asked to be the cameraman recording these. And this is all on video. I'm I have, with you. I have some of these recordings. Oh Wait, you is, have those? No. The thing I, I do. So, so the, oh, the, the thing is, the video camera was already on a tripod, so I didn't have to do anything. But that was my role until one <laughs> until one time, Sanjay brought me in, and I got to do Tom Sawyer by Rush. Oh, and that was yes. like, and that, and that was, Good and song. that was it. And that Where was it. are these videos, and can we have I'm them? Pointing. <laughs> I'm pointing. And, <laughs> and who was Neil Pert in that song? Who was playing the drums? I think that was Sandeep, wasn't it? <laughs> Sundeep or Ajay? No, it was Ajay. Yeah. yeah, he was. He's. He was. I mean, he really got into that. You know, he, he got just, into. He got uh, into the air. I mean, I, I, you were he thought he was it. You were convinced. Talk about mind body connection. That was. That was it. <laughs> do you remember Sanjay when Sunil came into this world? Do you remember him coming home? Yeah. Oh, very much so. Um, um, I was ten, uh, and and I guess I was nine. I turned ten that year, and. And um, it was it was really I mean you know went through the whole you know my mom was pregnant that that whole thing and you know just taking care of her and and being excited and then when he came home I remember uh, I remember thinking that well, 
I was the most excited. That other people weren't as excited as me. Like I'm, hmm. I'm sure my mom and dad were thinking about the work they now had to do. They were excited as well, Sunil. I don't want you to take that the wrong way. <laughs> but they, the, but I was like so excited, and I had a brother, and I would, you know, I every time in school, people would always ask you, you know, in addition to your name, how many siblings do you have? And I was always Sanjay, which nobody could pronounce, and then zero, you know, siblings, and so that all got to change, and um, so it was, it was really exciting. I feel like it was an inflection point. We we moved shortly after Sunil was born as well to a new neighborhood and. And, you know, I switched schools a couple of times during that time. So I, I felt like it was a, like Sunil's birth for me was a was a point of real transformation, I think. And I still think of like, I, you know, I, I guess this just happens with younger siblings, but I still think of Sunil as very much a little kid. Mm. And so everyone is measured by are they older or younger than my brother? If they're if they're my brother's age or younger, they're a kid. Mm-hmm. If they're older, then they're you know then they're a full on adult, right? I don't know when that changes. <laughs> Sunil, it, does, but... it doesn't. <laughs> you actually called me the other day and asked me when does that change? That? Yeah, I did. This was like this was like three weeks <laughs> I ago. I, 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 I think like, I just I was brushing my... my teeth and I suddenly had this I suddenly had this thought like. I still think of you as this little kid. So, is that always just how it is? So, you know, to my dying day, or, or, <laughs> like, what what changes? When do we think of ourselves as contemporaries and peers, as opposed to I am the ten year older brother? You know, and uh, and what did you? You had a good answer. I can't remember what you said. I, I, I said I don't know if it's going to change. I, I think kids probably have a lot to do with it. I've got two girls of my own now. So Sunday's got three. Right. I've got two. That's right. My parents have five granddaughters. All girls. And oh, my God. All girls. All girls. All girls. Wow. But, Lucky grandparents. I, yeah. Wow. No, I mean, I, I, feel like, I feel like Sanjay was, you know, he was, a, he was a third parent, and he was more than that. You know, he was, he was also a brother. He was a friend. He was a mentor. It was all kind of rolled up into one. So, you know, I think that that, but that, that, that hasn't really changed for me because of, all, you know, He's always sort of been this guiding kind of figure for me. That was true when I was four years old. It's true. It's true today. So that part I don't think is going to change. It is. It is strange. I, I remember when um, Sanjay had his first daughter, Sage, his, his oldest, his oldest daughter, and I remember him calling. Well, I was there, but he called me like the minute she was she was born. It seemed like, and he was like, you know, I'm I'm really thinking about you right now. Because I think that that kind of just transported him back to those mm. days that we're talking about right now, and I and I, it's um, it's it's not you know it's I remember him so well during that time you know the the the, the age of because he, he left the house when I was about seven years old which means that really if I if I start to kind of really remember things when I was like three four years old to seven that's not that's not much time that's about three years. But it seems like forever. Like I, I have so many memories of the two of us at the house together, which in a lot of ways makes me think about my role for my girl right now, my younger one, who's three years old, right? Like sometimes I think it's easy to dismiss this age because you kind of feel like, well, they may not remember as well. Um, but I think that for me, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was so much a part of my childhood. So, 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 so. But it sounds like Sanjay, you were involved. You were very involved in your little brother's life, right? Yeah. Because that can go either way. I mean, I guess you could be like, "I'm too old for you." We don't have anything in common. But, but that, you guys were latchkey was- kids. I mean, your parents were working, so Sanjay, I would assume that you had just uh, by nature took on a very more a paternal role for. 
Sunil? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, uh, my parents did work and they even worked a lot of weekends. So a lot of times it was just Sunil and I. And, you know, I mean, it's funny now because you can't think of a, a 10-year-old, I don't think. Like, I wouldn't have looked at my daughters and said they're 10 and now they can take care of a, a baby, you know? But, and we had help, you know, from time to time. There would be sitters and things like that that would help. But I was, you know, a lot of times I was primary sort of caregiver. And, I mean, one of the one of the stories I love uh, is that I, I took Sunil to this little amusement park when you were just like a year old or so. And it was Boblo Island. It's this little amusement park on this island uh, in the Detroit River. And it's it's cool. It's not there anymore, but it was a neat little place. And we had to go by bus, and then we had to get on a boat and take him. And I was 11. Jeez. And he was one. Oh, and my. And just, just how we did it. You know? I would just, never that was, that let my, <laughs> my children. Like, right? the idea of, like, Ryder even at 16 taking Ronnie is like, <laughs> no. It's not happening. <laughs> I know. It was crazy. Wow. But, you know, sometimes just out of necessity, you know, why don't you take him? We should take Sunil to Boblo. I don't know why, you know, it, it, he was he was baby and I felt like that'd be a good thing. Um, but like, will you take him? I'm like, okay, you know, we'll figure this out and we made it happen. So, what, so yeah. what were you guys like as kids? Like, what was your personality? Were you outgoing, shy? Hmm. I think, uh, well, I'm curious. This is a really good conversation. We, you know, it's funny doing this sort of conversation. We don't typically have these conversations, right? I mean, just to, I mean, I think, I think I was the shy one. Sunil was definitely, I think a lot more outgoing i i didn't i didn't have friends really sunil you seem to have a lot of friends well like, you had an airband so you had some friends i had my airband yes <laughs> right. i had i had, had that organized he had, he had his he had his fame he had right. his fame even he had that air day. air friends. that was not that that that, that those take need to be destroyed <laughs> there's no fame <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> no well, 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 there's why didn't you have friends like this seems to be a theme well i here. think part of it again is you know so even during the 10 years uh, a lot changed in in michigan you know there, there were no my parents, um, their, their, their friends were mostly Indians, culturally, you know, food-wise, music, things they could share. And a lot of times they didn't have kids my age, you know, so we would go to their house, whatever. That would be our social thing. And, and so I didn't have friends. And I, and I think just living in, a, in a, um, uh, a neighborhood where you're, again, the only Indian family, I just didn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood as well. I had a couple, but not, I didn't have like a friend group by any means. So, you know, you seem to have a lot of friends. You were definitely more outgoing. And I got to say one thing as well. It's, it's really interesting now being a dad because I see different personality traits in my own kids. And, and what's so funny to me, and again, I was having this conversation, is that how do you succeed as a kid, right? Like, what, like how do you think you're succeeding as a kid? Like, I think a lot of times it's the measurable things. You know, I'm, I'm getting good grades. I'm involved in activities, whatever it might be. Um, I think the idea of being just a sweet, engaging curious kid because it's harder to measure um you, you don't know you don't always know what to do with that i think i was a bookish sort of kid and Sunil was a bookish kid as well although you know i, I think he was Sunil was always just a really sweet engaging kid and i just saw people respond to him differently than they responded to me i was i was i was shy I, I was not very outgoing and I probably didn't smile as much even if I was smiling on the inside. So people thought you were surly 
It wasn't that I was surly. If I was interested in something, I would just sit there and stare at it, and they would think I wasn't curious. But I was, you know. So it was. It was a lot of that. It was. It was. I think I was misunderstood. It's so funny. It's so the irony. The irony of the fact that now you are like America's chief medical (laughs) correspondent and like bring everybody comfort. (laughs) But but I I think you just said something that is really really smart. Um, Finally. You've said something that's really <laughs> smart. No, I, I get that a lot too. Because I deal with that with my kids as well. You know, we it, we it's we live in this world of measurements, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. how do you stack up, right? How are you in school? Do you have extracurriculars? Yeah. Why but, isn't happiness a measure of one's success? But that's such that's doing right. such a disservice to all those kids. You know, just because we can't measure it, and I think that school education needs to shift in a way to sort of take so much so much pressure and stresses on standardized testing and all of these markers. Yeah, I mean, Sunday and I talk about this quite a bit, community now. I mean, I, I, I remember Sunday having um, friends in, in college that, we, that, that I would hang out with and we still hang out with now. Like, I think one thing that him and I have both done is we've, we've the friends we, we really, um, you know, grew to like and, and liked us, like we, we hung on to people. Like we, we definitely formed our circle and, and made sure that those relationships stayed intact. And, you know, Sanjay and I were talking about this because I, w- I was, I, I just, I just took a trip to Bhutan where mm. if you, if you, you know, Bhutan is, is the one country in the world that measures itself based on gross national happiness. So based on the happiness of their people and, you know, gross domestic product and all the other measures that, that, you know, we, we prioritize, here in the United States are important, but they're not everything. They're part of all, they're part of a bigger whole. And, and, and so when I was there, I got a chance to spend time with the team that really goes out and does the surveys and actually figures out how to measure the happiness. And I, I just simply, I asked them, you know, is there one question when you're going village to village, city to city, is there one question that you can ask that, that will give you a pretty good sense of how happy someone really is without having them fill out this whole survey? Just one question. And they said, yeah. And the question is, if you were in trouble today, do you know that there would be people who could come to your side without, without any hesitation, with 100% certainty? Do you have those people? And if the answer to that is yes, like you feel that, then your likelihood of being happier is, is much, much higher. Mm. But there's, there's, a, there's, a part, there's a part two to that as well, which is whose list are you on? Are there people out there who know without a doubt that you would be there by their side if they needed you? And they actually feel that that second part is even more important than the first. Mm. Wow. That's very cool. To be on someone's 911 list. Yeah. Yes. I think I'm on a lot of people's 911 list. I don't know if I can think of that yeah. many people that I would call, though. <laughs> Why you like, call me? Really? Me? I'll, I'll call you. But I, does brother, I think siblings count? I guess Sunil, do you feel yeah. that, that Sanjay... And how close you guys were at uh, during that brief time that Sanjay was home, that it really informed who you are now? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it gets to a lot of the stuff that Sanjay's talking about. I mean, I think the 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 warmth um, in the in the house wasn't always, you know, uh, visible. It was there, but it wasn't always visible. And I think Sanjay made it a point to want to keep things light for me. Um, he wanted to add that for me. Um, so no matter how serious things were, you know, he always brought the lightness. Sometimes he, he, he brought it in ways that like have, have been traumatic for me. Like he made me watch 
the Michael Jackson thriller video when I was like four years old. <laughs> oh, that's and, nothing. And then, uh, Oliver used to make yeah. me watch like Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, like, he really <laughs> went there. <laughs> that, that, that's worse. He went, all right, Oliver, you, you are messed up now. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, so, I, I agree. Yeah, so I, I, Sanjay, Sanjay kept this lightness. So I think, I think that for me has been, I mean, so, so important. Right. I mean, you know, no matter how serious things get, like knowing that there's some levity in the situation that you can find, I think mm. that's like that's that's a life skill. Yes. And he and he and he and he instilled that in me at such a such an early age. And by the way, like he's such a great example of that. Like he still does that. I mean, imagine kind of what the past two months have been like for Sanjay. It's it's but we're but we're still like texting every day or calling each other every day. And the conversations always have like a certain, we always make sure there's a certain level of lightness to it. Mm-hmm. No matter what, no matter what's happening in the world, we find a way to make that happen because we know it's important. It is. It's Sanjay, very, you mean, got, you got accepted to a, as an early app, right? At 16 years old yeah. to a medical program. Yep. And yep. so did you leave uh, high school and go right into medical school basically? Kind of. You're accepted into medical school right away. You have to do two years of college. Um, so you, you need to be at least 18 to start medical school. So I was, I did that time, you know, the first couple, it was at Michigan, University of Michigan. And, um, yeah, it sort of, it sort of set me on my, on my way. You know, you had to make the decision pretty early that you wanted to be a doctor, which is a tough decision to make in in retrospect. You know, you got to make that decision at 15 years old and you're making a life decision. That's crazy. Um, (laughs) It's crazy. I, 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 again, I have a daughter who's 14. I don't think she could make that decision next year. Mm -mm. Um, and she shouldn't, frankly. Did you know though? I mean, were you sure? No, no. no, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I I, I think sometimes it's, it's kind of like you just, you just do it. And then you sort of see, I mean, you'd like to think everything in life is well planned out, but, but, you know, as I, as I've now I'm 50 and I realize that most things aren't, you put yourself into certain situations and you think, uh, there's things about this that I like. I have certain attributes that I think, you know, may serve me well in, in these situations. I don't know exactly what they are. Um, but I, you know, I like science. Uh, my my grandfather, my mom's father, had, had a stroke when when we were pretty young. Um, I don't even know if you remember, so, you know, I guess you you were very young. I mean, five or six years old. But um, nobody in my family was a doctor, and and I, I spent more time in the hospital than with him. Sort of getting to to spend time with him and talking to his doctors and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that's what sort of set me on my way. But it wasn't there wasn't some some big drawn out sort of thinking process. You just do it, sort of mm-hmm. just a leap of, of faith a little bit. And it was a good program, and, and it, it would save two years of tuition, and my dad loved that. And, you know, I mean, the practicalities of life. And I was already accepted to med school, so I wouldn't have to go and take the MCAT exam. You know, it was just, it was the logic of it more than the emotion of it. You what know, would your parents have said if you're like, Mom, Dad, I want to go to Hollywood, and I want to be an actor? <laughs> <laughs> how would they how would they have be responded very careful to how that. i answer this <laughs> um my dad would not have liked it i'll be honest with you at all but uh, he, i could tell my you mom, I, I actually told him that last week <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah no so yeah, you got you got you got it you got it well to answer your question um my mom my mom i think i think the idea <laughs> i think the idea of being a dreamer extends to all parts of your life mm. you know it it, it it the dream is is the currency at that point it doesn't even hardly matter to some extent what 
the outcome is. It's, it's the dreaming. You know, like I, 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 again, with my own kids now, I keep talking about our, our own kids because it defines our lives now. But sure. what have I given them? I've given them the luxury to dream. That's it. You know, you talk about education. There's this great cartoon, and it's got a it's got a monkey, it's got an elephant, it's got a fish in a bowl, and it's got this guy sitting in front of all of them. And it says, this is a very simple intelligence test. All you have to do is climb that tree over there. Right? Monkey, mm-hmm. elephant, and fish in a bowl. Now, mm-hmm. the fish in a bowl will obviously fail that test. Um, but the fish in the bowl would be amazing at something else. The right person in the right seat on the right bus. Like how do you like I've given my kids the luxury to find the right seat on the right bus. Mm-hmm. That's what I've done. So going back to your question, if I if I said I really wanted to, to go to Hollywood, my mom would have totally supported. My dad would not have paid for it. He would have cut me off financially. <laughs> so I would have suffered for that. Exactly. Well, you made the right choice. I don't um, know. I, I uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> look, the, 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 by the way, you essentially are a performer in the, in the idea that well, you have No, no, no. Just hear me out for 5 seconds. Okay. All every all all you guys are because you have to go say the same thing mm. over and over again within an mm. hour and have conviction, make it sound like it's the first time you've said it. <laughs> and that's exactly what we have to do, take after take. You know what I mean? Like, is, and, See, I and never thought actually, of it that way. Now that you've said it, that's all I'm going to think about each well, time I do this. I've got to vary it up. Oliver's watching. You're God, like, oh, God, I'm saying the same thing. Yes. You're, you're a great actor. <laughs> my mom would be so proud <laughs> my dad wouldn't believe it you know I, I will tell you uh, Rebecca my wife actually wrote this the other day she wrote in a Facebook post and it was it was interesting because she she will write things in Facebook posts again that she would never tell me directly it's it's weird a little bit maybe sometimes it's less I don't know um, not not that I'm intimidating by any means but I'm just saying that sometimes you're more candid in some, and and it was this Maya Angelou quote, and it was basically the quote where you say, people don't always remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about this time in our history through this pandemic and things like that. I know I know my content. You know, I wake up at 4.30 every morning. I've, I've been waking up at 4.30 every morning basically since the beginning of the year. And I work all day. I work till 11 o'clock at night. That has been my life for the last several months. But as a result, I'm fully immersed. I know everything about this, this virus. I know everything about the vaccine trials, the therapies. I, I talk to sources in China every day in Taiwan, you know, and at the NIH. But how you say it, I think, to your, to your point, I think ends up almost being um, the thing where I have to spend a lot of time because some of it is, is frightening and scary and and and. I don't want to be not truthful. I want to be honest. But the inflection point between hope and honesty, maybe that's where performance lies in this regard. I, great, I'm never going to sacrifice point. honesty, but can I do it in a way that's hopeful? You know, um, and maybe it's the way you say something. Maybe it's it's the lilt in your in your voice. You know, maybe it's how fast you're saying something. If you're not trying to make it sound urgent and emergent, you know, it's, so, it's also as so a patient of, of many of doctors. You know, I guess you, we we would call it the doctor's bedside manner, <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> you know exactly. Which which says a lot for you know, and, and I think for a lot of patients and people who are looking to, especially caregivers and doctors, for hope in their diagnosis. Um, that a bedside manner 
probably would go a long way for someone's sense of safety. And Oh, I think that's so smart. And I think that is, there's more importance than there's, it's so important to create that for the audience. I mean, I think even Fauci, he sort of gets up there and you just feel like, Oh, like I kind of want to hang out. I trust you. (laughs) He's like, look, I don't know what's going to happen. This is that. And you're like, Oh wow. I sort of, I believe you. And the way you're speaking to me is if like, we're sort of friends and you know, there's a camaraderie there, you know, you're, 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 he's a part of it. In a sense, you know, I think trust is such a such a commodity nowadays, mm-hmm. and it, it's almost jarring when you when you are convinced someone is authentic. It's so rare, seemingly nowadays, that it's almost jarring when you look at somebody and you just say that guy is authentic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And and I think you know you're right. Fauci is is that guy, and it's a really tough time. So many pressures on him. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the collision points right now between science and politics are unlike anything I've ever seen. And I'm talking about anywhere in the world, really. You know, I cover stories all over the world. This, it's, 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 really, it's really challenging, I think, for someone like a Fauci to – I mean, I, th- I, I talk to him on a regular basis. I think he has the hardest job in the world in uh. some ways. You know, I know this isn't what you wanted to talk about, but South Korea – They've had fewer than 300 deaths. Yep. Their first patient was diagnosed on the same day our, our first patient was. We've had 102,000 people who have died. Yes, they are one-seventh the size, so multiply it times seven. Their, death, their death count is in the hundreds, not the thousands, not the hundreds of thousands. You know, it's, it's, it's still, they didn't have a magic pill. They had no vaccine. They had the same things we did. And, and so my point is, you know, everyone, everyone's going to do the postmortem on this, but this didn't have to go this way. I was reading about that in, in, in Vietnam as well. Yeah. Vietnam lost, they, they, I, yeah, I don't, it's really low death counts. I know. Uh, um, and, and basic just public health principles. They used the World Health Organization test. They identified people very quickly, isolated them, never got this into exponential growth like happened here. So yeah. everything anyway, that we, it, we could have done. Correct. Absolutely. And we were the world leaders in that stuff. I mean, right. we, we are the, we eradicated smallpox. We're on the verge of eradicating polio. We came up with some of the most effective vaccines anywhere in the world. Yeah, we, we, other, other organizations in other countries call their organizations the CDC in deference to our CDC. We, you know, we, <laughs> that was our, that was our bread and butter really in this country. You know, guys like Larry Brilliant, who, who is still alive and, you know, talks about things all day. He eradicated smallpox. He eradicated d- a disease. You know, nobody gets to say that. And, and, and they knew how to do this. Uh, even, even, you know, before, even anticipating that there wouldn't be a vaccine available for some time. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's tough. You know, I know people who've died of this disease. Uh, and it's very tough to go out there and say, you know, their deaths were preventable. It doesn't make the families feel any better. That's for sure. Mm. It makes them feel worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's going to be other waves to this. And I'm sure Vivek talked about this as well. So hopefully we'll learn, you know, some of these things going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to have to apply these lessons right away. It's not like this 100 years from now. We need to apply these in the fall, mm-hmm. like you know, maybe in a couple of months. So. Well, because there's going to be a second wave. The virus is still out there. Fauci is so so good at what he does because he 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 does this thing. And I I told him this flat out. I said, you have this amazing ability to sort of slow roll 
the mm. country into things. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll do a 15-day pause. We'll see how things go. Yeah. It was never going to be a 15-day pause. He knew at that point this was going to be months of having to slow the country down. But you can't say that. No. And then, you know, we'll have a vaccine, you know, in 12 to 18 months. We don't know. Maybe that's true. But he has this way of, of, of slow rolling things. So, yes, if he told you maybe there would be a second wave, there's going to be a second wave. Has Sanjay always been a person who was interested in, like, a little bit of everything? You know, to be, to go, he goes, becomes a doctor, then he, then he, becomes a journalist and now you know you, you have a brother that's like in Iraq and then he's in you know covering Ebola and then he's in Puerto Rico and all over the world putting himself in dangerous you know literally a front you are a frontline journalist right and uh, with all that making time for the air band which is that's gonna be the headline so thank you very much um no but but i mean have was was he always like that as a kid no you're right i mean sanjay is always the guy who's running as people are running away from the fire sanjay is running into the fire and that was true new orleans after hurricane katrina earthquake haiti um africa during ebola like and and i think that um uh, yeah, I think that he's always kind of been that way. I mean, he's he's always been he's always been someone who um, is curious and um, uh, interested and wants to wants to serve, wants to wants to be useful. Um, you know, one of the one of the pieces of advice that Sanjay gave me, which is kind of related to this, is like you always want to be running towards something and not away from something. And I, and you know, I think in the context that he gave me that it was career advice, you know, because I was I was in a job I didn't like, and I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to go do something else. And he's like, cool, go do something else, but but figure out what it is that you want to go do, and then go do that. Run towards something rather than sort of saying I, I, I hate this job and I'm going to run away from it. Um, and I think that that's kind of you know how I how I've seen Sanjay sort of live his career as well, um, life and career is is always kind of being, you know, willing to run towards something, always, always feeling like, um, even if people are running away from it, I'll run towards it. That's that's relevant. That's relevant advice right now in these last, in this last eight, nine days, by the way, you know, it's not easy to run towards the burning building, but you know, it's, it's a necessity at this point, even if it's uncomfortable and, you know, you might get burned a little bit here and there, but it's important to run towards the problem. And I'm learning that right now. You know what I mean? I'm going through these motions of, man, what do I do? How do I do? You know, I, I, I need to move forward and not backwards. It's not time to yeah. retreat. And I've yes. never been someone, honestly, to run forward. I kind of hang out in my spot and watch things go by. Like, that's my nature. Literally, and, literally. I've then, watched him do that many yeah, times. <laughs> I watched, I've watched my career go by. I've watched... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but... You know, it's it's relevant. It's a relevant. Uh, it's a relevant. That's relevant information right now. It's a great, great sort of thing. I mean, and also, Sunil. I mean, I'm just going to put myself in your shoes for a second. We're ten years older, which is a significant amount of time to be older, and doing all of these really, like, amazing, interesting, selfless things. In my mind, I would wonder if that would affect how you would look at your future. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to become a doc? Like, you know, and interestingly enough, you become, I mean, what you're, you were called like what, like the great young innovator. 
Um, <laughs> what, was world, it? what was the title? The, I was like, this will always stay with you forever. The world's sexiest innovator. <laughs> the <laughs> the new face of it, innovation. Look, I mean, I think new I face think of innovation. That, I think yes. that the if you ever want to ask yourself the question, like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Right. Like, have have Sanjay be your brother. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, it's 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 it, like you're always. I'm I'm always asking myself that question, but at the same time, like. He is, he is the guide. He prompts me to ask myself that question and then he guides me to the answer. So it's this, it's this sort of this push and pull, but it is funny. Like, you know, 2016, after the presidential election, I moved back to Michigan to run for Congress. And, and, um, and I, I moved back here because I felt like, you know, our, our community where Sunday and I grew up was one of the communities that decided to flip from blue to red that year. And I, and I really wanted to kind of just run, to, run, follow my brother's advice, run, run towards the problem, figure out what I could do. And ultimately that ended up being me running for office. And it's funny because um, it was the first time that, you know, in my own community, in this congressional district where I'd walk around and people would, would, would recognize me um, when I wasn't walking with Sanjay. When I'm walking with Sanjay, they're coming up to us all the time. This is the first time people come up to me and, you know, like asking for like, uh, you know, photo or something like that. So, you know, I, I still remember the first time it happened, this, this guy comes up and he says, Hey, can I, can I get a selfie? And I said, yeah. I mean, again, used to this with Sanjay, not used to this alone. And the guy says, yells to his buddy before he takes the shot. He yells to his buddy, he says, Hey, Brian, come in here, get in this photo with Dr. Sanjay Gupta's brother. Oh, well, welcome to my world, man. <laughs> welcome to my world. I'm Kate yeah, Oliver, brother. I, yeah, Oliver, I think you and I, I think you, you and I should start our own podcast. <laughs> we should. We, we should. The siblings of. Bro, There'd the be no play on of. words in that one. That would be sibling rivalry straight <laughs> out. Sibling rivalry, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but you said something really interesting, Sunil, which I, I think is was a really good point. In the tech world, in the business world, like you're in consumer goods, right? You're in consumerism. And there's a lot of really brilliant business minds that can that can help in in world in, in the in the uh, whether it be the healthcare community or in politics or that actually are looking at how do we how do we talk to the consumer how do we talk to uh, the patient or the the political how do we how do we speak to the to the people Kate and I think you talk about this a lot too and and you know maybe it's an overused word sometimes but empathy. Is 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 I think you know the way to do it without having to manipulate anything. I mean, it's just it's it's amazing you know how how under under how how much of a lack of empathy there can be. I think both in the consumer space and politics, everything, I mean, even just. I mean, I was I was I was looking up the the definition of empathy and comparing it to the definition of compassion the other day because I was really wanted to understand sort of the nuance between the two, and and they're very different. Right. I mean, compassion is, is sort of, you know, you, you get a feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that that happened to you and you're sort of there for that person. And that's really important. But empathy is simply being able to describe what happened to you in a way that you say, yeah, that is exactly what happened to me. Right. So just being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and say, look, this is this is what I think you're going through right now. This is what I'm hearing. Um, and having that person be like, yeah, you got it is is an incredibly powerful um, and very, very underutilized thing. Like, I, I, it's um, it's almost unbelievable how powerful it is, and yet how rarely we see it being, you know, put into use. Hmm. Mm. So, what was it like when he when Sanjay left? 
Do you remember that? Was it lonely? Was it empty? Were you excited? <laughs> it's funny because it's funny because the program that Sanjay was describing was called Inaflex. That was the name of the program, Interflex, which was the combined sort of shortened college plus med school. And I am six years old. I had no idea what that meant. And I just heard the word flex. And I thought my brother was going to be a bodybuilder. <laughs> <laughs> makes total sense. <laughs> I still, yeah, I still do <laughs> one day. So, so no, I, I, that, that's, it was lonely, Kate. It was lonely. I mean, all of a sudden, like, again, you got this sort of larger than life presence who's in your house and is, is kind of everything to you, you know, older brother, second, third parent. Um, and then, and then all of a sudden that's sort of gone, but the, the good news was that he was, he was not that far away. It was only mm. a half hour away. So, um, actually, you know, one of my, one of my a memory, a special memory that I'll never forget is Sanjay actually bringing me to his dorm for an overnight stay. I'm seven years old and I'm, I'm there hanging out with all his friends. What was that? West, was it West Quad? East Quad. East Quad. <laughs> right. Yep. I still, rem- I still, re- I still remember that. Do you remember that's that? That's crazy. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, that's it was, so it, was, it was special. It was, I you know, it was it was a it was a really interesting relationship. There wasn't a lot of people who had siblings that much younger. But I will tell you though, I I, I did worry that it would be lonely for for Sunil at home. To to your question, you know, because I had been sort of a third parent, and I think there was also this this um, this other nuanced sort of point, which was that. Like, I think, you know, my parents had me pretty young. They obviously were 10 years older when they had Sunil, but my, I think mom was 23 when she had me, you know, so, you know, young for, you know, obviously people have, have kids at younger ages, but for them, especially it was pretty young. And there was a, there was a certain, I think, um, there's a certain maturity that just comes about as you get older as a parent. And, and, uh, I also think that when you live your life as a refugee early on in life, you, you, no matter what, no matter how much success you have, you always live this life like it could all be taken away tomorrow. It could all go away tomorrow. And, and the way that manifests itself sometimes is stress, just lots of stress and a lot of anxiety and, and, and you know, being stricter, I think, as parents. And so um, I think I was there in part to, as Sinem says, lighten it up, but also soften the edges a bit. And then I think when I was now accepted to medical school, I think my parents did have this idea that even if everything was taken away from them, that at least, you know, I was going to have a job and, you know, help support them if necessary, whatever it might be. And that, I think, helped allay some of the the stress and anxiety in their lives as well. So hopefully it it, it uh, serves Sunil well. I, you know, it was, so you're saying again, Sunil we've never had really a much more this. fun, fun. He did. He did. <laughs> more, le- more levity. Don't, don't, is, it that, is that true with all siblings? Do they always say this, that the other one had it better? I think maybe they do. I don't um, know. I think Ollie had true. it the best. <laughs> I'll say that's true. Me too, Ollie. It's so funny. You're talking about visiting him at college at seven years old. When I went to visit Oliver at college in Boulder, <laughs> at Boulder a, I a, literally yeah. was like, I'm never going to college. It ruined <laughs> It ruined my my. Why? Oh, it was just terrible. It was just, everybody was wasted. Oh, yeah. It, it was, was rowdy. That was the attraction and then, back then, wasn't that the? Isn't that why you? Yeah, I mean, I went for two years. I, I showed up at Boulder with my best friend, which was great. You know, one of the first moments I had was just watching, you know, some guy in a crazy mullet run into a door on purpose and knock himself <laughs> out. 
That's not even <laughs> that's not even a joke. And I'm like, oh whoa, like where the hell am I? And I said, well, this is a two year plan for me. And uh, I, I, I was going to have a good time on is. campus and off campus. And then I'm, I was out. What and do you that, think that mullet guy is doing right now? I know his you, name. I'm, I'm not sure I should say Let's his name, look this I, guy up. <laughs> I don't I'll know what he's doing. I'll break my social Sunil's media. I'll break my social media. the face of innovation. He can find this for you. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys remember a moment, you know, when, you know, you're 10 years apart, but then your ages really didn't matter as much? So Sandra and I both, we spent, we both spent um, some time together in D.C. Um, Sanjay at the time was, gosh, I mean, what, 29? And I was 19? Uh, kind of around there. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we were both, we were both working at the white house at that time. Sanjay was a fellow. I was an intern and we spent a lot of that summer together. And that was the first time that we had spent. I mean, I think it was the first time both of us had been outside of Michigan, living outside of Michigan somewhere. And, uh, and, um, it was, it was a really, I mean, I think that that probably started it. I mean, it still very much was the big brother, little brother thing. That was a fun, it was a fun time, um, you know, but I think that was probably it. I think that, uh, you know, being able to have a drink that just engaging in some tradition, I think made, made a difference. I think, uh, um, we have a lot of family members we'd go to, to go to family weddings and things like that. And I remember, you know, people sort of looking at us as just brothers now, not, not, you know, he's 10 years older, you know, just Sunil and Sanjay, you know, just sort of describing us together. I think that, and then I think, um, I think certainly after, um, we all had kids for sure. I think you're right about that, Sunil. We, we, uh, that, that now it just, it's kind of like, it's not about us anymore. It's, it's about our kids and, and therefore we, we are, we're on equal footing. We, we share that in common that it's mm-hmm. not, our lives are not for us anymore. Um, were you guys in each other's dating lives? Were you like, I like this girl. <laughs> I don't like this guy. I mean, that would yes. have been so weird. Even when we got together when he was 19 or 18, you know, I really had not spent time with him since he was six or seven years old. So, you know, there was still that part of it. Like, I probably wasn't going to ask him for advice on my, my dating life. <laughs> Although he, he, he did. Uh, he but I did, gave it to him anyway. <laughs> he gave it to me anyway. <laughs> but he, has, he, he did spend time with my now wife when he was a kid. I mean, you know, very young. And uh, which is still wild to me, right? 12, 13 years yeah, old. Yeah, I think she came to like my 12th birthday, which is, you know, that's younger, really? much younger in age. Coors Light. Actually, I am heading on a RV trip with the family. Um, I'm heading up north, and what a perfect time to fill my cooler with some Coors Light, which I actually will be doing. Coors Light wants to make it easier for you to chill this summer and give you a break from the stress and the pressures of daily life, okay? Plus, the new Coors Light Summer Can does the work for you. It features sunglasses that literally turn blue when the beer is cold and ready to drink. So we have graduated from the mountains to the sunglasses. Because when you wear sunglasses, you're cool. You know what I mean? You're chill. (laughs) It's supposed to be freezing cold. It's made to be cold. And you know what? I like a cold beer. I'm one of those. Like I'm not a big fan of the warm ales. Cold, crisp, freezing cold. My, that's my kind of beer. And only 102 calories. That's very nice. Three-point beer. If you, if you want a low-calorie beer, Coors Light 
is calling to you. Um, Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process. It's cold lager, cold filtered, and cold packaged. So it's actually made to chill. Both the mountains and the sunglasses on the new limited edition summer cans can turn blue when chilled to perfection. That's why Coors Light is the one that I choose. That's, that's real, right? I know I'm reading, but I actually choose. It is the one that I, Oliver Hudson, choose when I need a moment of chill. So when you want to reset this summer, reach for the beer that is made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Okay, Bill Clinton, I, I took a puff and didn't inhale. Can our next president be a pothead? Can <laughs> our next president just say, yeah, I smoke weed? Asking yeah. the man who studied it for five years. Before well, this is why I'm asking him because, you know, uh, I, I know this is probably an exhaustive topic and we know a lot through you know, your coverage of it and your sort of transformation from being, uh, from four, from against to four, you know, and I love, I love my marijuana for a lot of reasons, but I'm wondering, has it changed to where our next president could be like, yeah, I take a puff now and again. Yeah. I I think, I I think absolutely, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, even if you go back and, and read, you know, um, President Obama's book, the audacity of hope, I mean, he talks about, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about the fact that he was, as he describes it, quote, living the life of an urban, quote, urban black male at that point, which meant he did a lot of drugs. You know, he mm-hmm. did he did things that were illegal. And, and, and the consequence, right, for someone of his position saying that is then people will say, well, how does that translate towards drug laws and drug reform and all that? And then that's always going to be the dicey thing. You know, you did it. So why are you, why are people getting penalized for it? You know, mm-hmm. fair, fair question. So they'll, they'll have to do both. They'll, they'll, they'll be able to admit it and they'll have to be able to have a rationale in terms of how they're going to take their own experience then and apply it to policy, you know? But yes, I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I think what you're saying in, in terms of all different sorts of reasons that you said you took, that you use marijuana, people do use it as a, as a medicine, you know? I mean, I think that was, that was the sort of transformative thing for me, is that you automatically thought of it as this illicit sort of thing, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the hangover from, you know, the, the um, reefer madness sort of thing, <laughs> to this idea that people who actually had legitimate medical problems were taking it for legitimate medical reasons. And, and by the way, the antidepressants and other medications that they'd be prescribed had all sorts of side effects, you mm-hmm. know, like, why was that legal? Why, how did they justify that? You know, how do you justify that this is a, you know, $100 billion drug over here, approved by the FDA, prescribed by a doctor, given to you in a pill form, all that versus this over here, which is a plant that helps me and mm-hmm. costs me very little money, uh, whatever it might be. So it, it's a, uh, it, a lot has changed. I mean, and the research is ongoing. Obviously, you know, we're just the, the the research is ongoing. But I think what we can say is that it's a medicine. Yeah. Right. Do yeah. and and so so is uh, opioids. And opioids are medicine. They have side effects, but mm-hmm. it is a medicine. So I think that's the first sort of decision thing. You know, just it's not just this this hocus pocus illegal. I just got to I just got to tell you this real quick thing about about weed and Sanjay because. It's, it's funny, like, like careful. <laughs> Weed and Sanjay. That's going to be the name well, of like, our like, episode. It's the first. It's the first like issue that like we, we saw him like you know 
be a journalist, but also be an advocate, right? Like actually say like, this is what I, this is what I believe, by the way, like, here's all the research behind it. But also I believe, you know, be an advocate for it. And it's funny because that's, that's the first visible issue at least. And my dad calls me one day and he's like, of all the issues that he could have chosen, he chose his marijuana. <laughs> I didn't know that. Really, yeah. Dad was upset with me about the whole the whole pot thing. I didn't yeah, know that. Was, was... Mom was proud of me. Mom's always proud. Mom's I'm so proud, proud of you. Mom's always proud. What was the year with the first thing on CNN with weed? Um, let's see. I think that was 2015, maybe mm-hmm. five years ago. Um, But I want to get to psilocybin really quickly because this is something that had been studied earlier on. You know, I think it was like in the 40s and 50s and 60s -hmm. and then the drug culture sort of, you know, the counterculture, I guess, ruined it. I think, uh, you know, it's exactly what you said. There's a similar trajectory here. Uh, You know, psilocybin was used for the treatment of addiction in the 40s um, as as, uh, uh, we came off of, um, you know, the the prohibition sort of era. There were all these different substances that I think that um, those those enforcers were setting their sights on, including cannabis, including psilocybin. I got really uh, I read Michael's first article that he wrote in the New Yorker about the NYU trial, which even predated the the original Hopkins trial. And that was amazing. And I and I am lucky to know Michael. I talked to him a lot, spent a lot of time just talking to him about the science. I went and interviewed the scientists at NYU who did that first trial. And it was it was it was mind blowing, really. I mean, you may know this, but just just briefly, there was 30 patients in that initial trial. All of them had been given a terminal diagnosis. They were all going to die, uh, different ages, different reasons, uh, different backgrounds, belief systems, and they were incorrigible in terms of their their uh, depression, their anxiety. They just could not, nothing was working. So they had this terrible situation where they were terminal and they were also becoming increasingly suicidal, uh, totally isolated from their families, and they got enrolled in this trial using psilocybin, a single dose of psilocybin. And, I mean, you know, the reason it became such a big deal was because that trial was, was unbelievable. I mean, you had 26 people who had response, which was, these were people wow. who didn't respond to anything, anything. They went through generations of medications. Nothing worked. 26 of them had a response. Wow. Um, many of them never had to take another medication again, you know. So it worked. Not only did it work, but it was durable. lasted for mm-hmm. several months, maybe even longer. So I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I think you know the idea. I mean, I could go really deep into this, but you know, we we're trying to maintain a certain amount of serotonin in the brain. Problem is, when you give serotonin through a pill, the body then is basically saying, "That's great, getting serotonin elsewhere. I no longer need to make it." Uh, so when you stop taking the serotonin, um, or or a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is what these medications are then you crash and you can have these horrible, horrible sort of episodes and side effects. For whatever reason, psilocybin seems to create a pattern in the brain where the body essentially is sort of teaching itself to make the serotonin to, again, the specific serotonin again. It's wild. Why would that happen? We don't know. But I think this idea that we, we, we evolve with these plants. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, people, you know, now I will say the, the, the difference, I guess, a little bit between psilocybin and cannabis is that cannabis side effect profile is super, super low. I mean, nobody, nobody's ever 
probably really had significant problems, you know, on, on cannabis. And some people do with psilocybin, you know. But, and so I think it would need to be studied in terms of dosing it and, and whether microdosing makes sense and all these various things that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is another example of a plant, of a naturally occurring thing, being, being ostracized for political reasons, you know. It, it, it's for cultural reasons, not for scientific. But it's shifting. At least it's shifting. Yeah, we couldn't talk about these things at all. I mean, when I first did the weed documentary and I wrote an op-ed, the, 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 I, I was worried. I think I probably even called Sunil and said, the, the, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow when this thing gets published. I, you know, I don't know how my – I still practice neurosurgery. I don't know how my colleagues in the hospital are going to look at me or think about this. Are they going to think of me as some <laughs> pothead who's just They're like, like you know, is he high on my <laughs> – Exactly. On my he must right have been now. high, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But you One know, of my it, favorite stories. That. My favorite stories from that time is like Sunday was at like the, it was like in the New York, New York CNN office, and he was going out to lunch with like a few of the executives. He's got suit types, and they're like on the street in New York, and they're walking down the street, and all of a sudden like. There's, there's just a bunch of guys from across the street. They're like, yo, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you fucking rule, man. <laughs> they were clearly high. <laughs> I look at them and they kind of give me this look like this year, your buds. And I'm like, yeah. the weed documentaries, you know, it's a whole new. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a funny it's a story, but it actually it, it is. But it speaks volumes to expanding your demographic for real. I mean. That one op-ed or or the one documentary, boom, you have just expanded your demographic by at least 25 million people. It's crazy, right? <laughs> I, I know. And, 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 you know, one thing I'll say about that is that, as you know, as a lot of people who've been beating the drum on this issue know, and they would rightfully say this, is that – so I've been saying this for 20 years. The other people would say that, right? I've been saying this for 20 years, and then Sanjay Gupta gets on and he does this thing, and all of a sudden – well, you know, I would no way dismiss all the work that came ahead of time. I, I, I admitted it. I wasn't listening to people. I, I dismissed them because I thought it was a just a ladder towards recreational. There wasn't any other motive in my mind, you know. I, I So it did take a, the digging. But there were people who've been saying this for a long time, you know. And, uh, and uh, we, just, we just got to amplify that message. Are you still practicing, by the way? I, mean, I still practice, st- yeah. Do you get people calling you like, I want Gupta to do my surgery. I just think he's amazing on CNN. <laughs> I find like there's three, there's three types of patients I've realized. There, there, is, there is that type who, who they see you on television and they figure, well, if he's on television, he must be good, which is ridiculous. That's no way mm-hmm. to think about the world. Um, I think I'm good. Don't get me wrong, but I don't yeah. think I'm any better because I'm on television. Um, the second type, I think, is people who actually would prefer that you're not on television. Like, hey, mm. so just so we're clear, you're thinking about nothing but my brain, you know, during this time, right? Which is, which is what I would do anyways. Mm-hmm. And then there's a significant population that just doesn't, doesn't register, doesn't click. Mm. That, that somebody will tell them afterward or something like that. And they'll be like, wait, what? That guy? So oh, really? But do yeah. you get patients who aren't aware that you're going to be doing their surgery? And they're like, um, yeah, so Sanjay Gupta will be doing your surgery. And they're like, what? fucking cool man <laughs> <laughs> well the the the, the um 
if so, if we're doing like if we're doing elective operations, you know, I'll go meet with the patient in, in the office and talk to them in the clinic and stuff like that. So you know, we have that relationship already. And <laughs> okay, you know, now we there will be trauma sometimes. Like I'll take care of trauma patients, and then mm-hmm. after trauma, like car accident or gunshot wound to the head or something like that, I'll, I'll go talk to the family afterwards and the patient and. There'll be that that moment of of sort of. <laughs> oh my gosh, that Good would be like loved ones doing great. I mean, that great. would be shocking. I would think that that family would that would be one of those sort of shocking moments of like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> well, it's like Sanjay Gupta saved my life. Well, have you, is, have you you should tell the story about uh, about Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh. As father. Jesus. I love this. Well. I, I, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize because it's kind of, but when I was out in Iraq, you know, covering a war as a, as a neurosurgeon, you know, I was there as a journalist, but covering as a neurosurgeon, there weren't neurosurgeons out there in the particular area of the battlefield where I was. And, um, and I was embedded with a group of doctors called the Devil Docs. And, uh, we were, got really tight. I mean, you're in a war together and you get really close. And so there for weeks and, um, one day, Somebody got shot in the head. Uh, um, a, a lieutenant uh, was on patrol outside Baghdad, and they came to me. And I was again the only neurosurgeon there. Like, can you take off your journalist cap and put on your surgeon's cap and take care of him? Which I, which of course I wanted to to do and was honored to do, and and ended up operating on him and decompressing his brain, taking this bullet out of his brain in the desert, and um, which is a whole sort of you know, um, life sort of moment, but, but, and I didn't know how he was going to do. He, he, you know, it was a significant injury. It was a sniper injury. And, um, months later I'm home and I get a call from, um, from San Diego where he lived. And it was the, the, uh, the rehab center where they were taking care of him. And I didn't even know that he had survived. There was no medical records in the desert. So they call and they's like, you know, do you remember operating on Jesus Vidania over in Iraq? And I'm like, yeah, operating on Jesus in the middle of the desert. How do you forget that, right? <laughs> and I, uh, I, uh, they're like, and I was like, hey, how's he, how's he doing? And they say, well, he's, you know, he's got a little bit of left hand weakness, but other than that, he's doing great. You should, you should pay him a visit sometime. Which was, so I was out in Southern California. I, I, uh, I go to, um, I look him up, go to his house, call him ahead of time. It wasn't a total surprise. He answers the door handsome marine you know last i'd seen him he was just beaten and battered on the desert floor and you know and he was great and you know just kind of fall into it right start talking and we go inside his house he's a young guy he's living with his parents and um his mom comes out a few minutes later and she's so sweet and she takes my hands are you the guy that operated on my son I said yes ma'am i am and she holds my hands thank you very much you know and then a couple minutes later dad comes out Dads are different. And he's like, you're the guy that operated on my son? And I said, y- yes, sir, I am. He goes, and you're a journalist? <laughs> <laughs> hadn't quite gotten the whole story. <laughs> so, but, but we, you know, I, I'll tell you one other thing, and that reminds me just of this podcast, uh, <laughs> is that we, yeah, we, we just sat down and talked. Jesus, his mom and dad, and I, we just started talking. And I realized something, and this is months after the guy had been shot in the head, almost died in the middle of a war zone outside of Baghdad, went to Germany for rehab for a while, went to Walter Reed, ended up going back to Southern California where he lived. And I realized after a few minutes of being there with them, they'd never really talked about it. I mean, they sort of talked about it. They talked about it procedurally, like, you know, you flew from here to here, but just the idea 
of of like what it meant for them that they thought they were going to lose their son that that Jesus had said to him his father before he left that I'll be fine don't worry about me only worry if a car pulls up with a couple guys in uniforms that means that's bad that means I'm dead and that's exactly what happened and that's the only thing his father could remember when they came to tell him that you know Jesus had been shot and uh you know just like all those things and and I think it's not a good experience by any means but it was an experience and and the idea that they like I was nurturing that conversation for them I felt it was very powerful it's mm-hmm. kind of like I mean this is a different sort of conversation we're having right now, but Sunil and I never get to talk like this. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of wild. We just don't have these conversations. No, it's, so, it's so important. And also like just the fact that there's nobody in the world who knows you better than your younger brother. I mean, yeah. he's seen it all <laughs> and vice versa. Have, have you guys seen right. each other at all? Or where, where are you at with that? Just we were supposed to all hang lately. out. We were, yeah. We were supposed to all hang out in March. We were actually going to see my parents, our parents. And, um, we ended up calling that off, like, and this was before any shelter in place or anything. And so everybody's excited, particularly our girls. We're very excited to see each other. They really like hanging out. And uh, and Sanjay calls me a couple of days before we we're all going to leave and says, you know, I think we should. I think this thing is going to, um, you know, be be more real than people are giving it credit for, and we should probably um, bag the plans. And so we haven't we haven't seen each other in person since then, but. Um, you know, soon. Like my yeah. daughters, my daughters cannot wait. They're constantly talking about their cousins, mm. constantly talking about when are we going to see them. So one way or another, like we're we're, we're driving out to you. Mm-hmm. So you guys are obviously. I uh, mean, the, you can feel the love between you guys. You're extremely close and open. I wouldn't go that far, actually. No, <laughs> no, no. I missed the mark on that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. What was it you were saying before, Oliver, about performing? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Some things don't change. <laughs> What's the book that um, that you guys wrote that is uh, that, that is not not together, but the each that, that is, has not come out yet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was back when mine's called "Keep Sharp." My book sort of is is about the brain, and it's it's this idea a little bit like what we were talking about earlier that uh, you know we do tend to medicalize everything with regard to the brain, Alzheimer's disease, various forms of dementia. Uh, the self-healing of the brain, what, what, what is possible, really, and evidence-based. You know, you, we, we look at societies around the world that have hardly any evidence of dementia. There are things to learn from these places, and we now recognize that, you know, the basic lifestyle changes that we used to think of primarily with heart disease, you know, we can reduce heart disease by doing the following things. We don't think about that with the brain as much but that evidence does exist. So I, you know, it was a selfish book in a way. I just want to learn as much as I could and, and mm. have an organizational structure to do it. But, and I love the brain. So awesome. I can't future. wait. Can't wait. Okay. So Thanks. Neil, so yours is called backable. Yeah. Backable is all about how do you inspire people to take a chance on you? And I got, I got inspired to write the book because when I was founding my first company, I was struggling to get people to invest in it. Like, how do you raise money? How do you get people excited about the idea? And I kind of had to just work my way into it and figure it out. And along the way, I started taking notes, like here's what's working and here's what's not. Um, and then, uh, you know, after after I ended up selling the company, I started interviewing people who are backers across all these different industries. So, you know, military leaders at places like the Pentagon, creative executives at places like Pixar and Lego, Oscar-nominated producers and directors, and just understanding what is it that inspires them to say yes to something, yes to an idea, yes to a person. 
And I, I started to realize that there's really these themes that come out no matter where you are, no matter what you're trying to do, whether you're starting a nonprofit, a service, an app, Kate, or whatever it is, uh, there are these common themes about um, how you get somebody excited about your idea. So that's what this book is about. Speed round. Okay, ready? Let's go. Here we go. One word to describe the other. Courageous. Um, compassionate. Um, okay, what about one word to describe the other at 16? Excited. Excited. That was a big year for you. You, 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 wanted, you, were, you, were, you were on the brink of going out and doing, getting out of the house, and you're excited. Getting out of Novi, Michigan. <laughs> yeah, that was that's true. Um, one word. Uh, curious. Who's more competitive? Hmm. That's a good question. So now you go first. I think I think you are more competitive. I would say. I I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think it's probably true. I think I think part of that just goes back to the earlier discussion where the metric of success was just different. You know, it was all, it was the measurables. So I needed to get the measurable things right. But I think you were always I wouldn't say competitive, but you were always really good at all that stuff. You just didn't have the competitiveness didn't drive you, I don't think. Okay, who is the favorite child? Sunil. <laughs> Me. <laughs> the who's who's the biggest hypochondriac? Sunil. Definitely. Uh, really? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you always had some ailment. Always. Mom was always calling me, Sunil, it doesn't feel well today. I think mom was a <laughs> like, he's trying to get out of a test. I'm like, does he have a test? He's getting out of a test. <laughs> but Sanjay, do you, are you hypochondriacal at all? I mean, is there any no. part of you that's like, oh, what is this? No. Uh, no. I mean, it would have to be pretty bad. It yeah. would have to be pretty bad. I'm, 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 you know, a little bit with this COVID stuff because I was in some crazy places and I thought I definitely have it. But mm-hmm. I'm, 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 uh, I, and even with the kids, the kids joke. I mean, my wife's not a doctor. They always go to her for any anything because that's I, 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 that's not a thing. That's, you're that's not even trying so anything funny. Real. That's a cut. Let me show you a cut. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, who's boss here? Uh, that'd be me. <laughs> I'm an older sibling. I think older I siblings say, are. <laughs> who got the better grades? Sanjay. Yeah, I did. Who's your I first did. celebrity crush? Hmm. Uh, the girl who played uh, Winnie Cooper on. Um, oh, oh, oh my show. god! <laughs> uh, yeah. On Wonder Years, Fred Wonder Savage Wonder Wonder was yeah, mine. Hundred percent. Yeah, I loved Fred Savage. And then I remember I um, went to prom and he was there and I was like, oh my God, I'm at a prom really? and there's Fred Savage. <laughs> that is how most stories don't turn out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't remember. Jamie Summers. Oh. Jamie, Jamie Summers. Summers. Who's Jamie woman? Summers? Yeah. It's, it's, it's the $6 million man, but she was the bionic woman, right? That's right. Jeez, yeah. this really woman. was like the only thing you've ever... <laughs> That was a thing for me. He's based his. I was, I was allowed an hour of television a week. Uh, his entire practice is based on the six million dollar man. No one knows that. <laughs> <laughs> we can go deep on this. <laughs> who uh, who would win in a physical fight? Sanjay. Maybe yeah. Doing, Maybe for a couple more doing, years. I am doing yoga. Uh, yeah. I was gonna say. Let's see how this turns out. You're, you're more. You're you're more flexible. Um, who's funnier? Hmm. 
that's a subjective thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think, I think Sunil's very funny. He, he is, timing is, is impeccable. Um, I'd say Sunil. If you guys could do another job, what would it be? You know, if, if, if you didn't, if you weren't doing what you were doing, is there something that you would do? I'd probably write. I'd probably be a writer, I think, as a, as a full-time job. Just I would, I would write enough, like in my job job, to make a living and then work on the side on writing projects I really loved. Okay, so not I feel an like actor. There's, not an actor. Although okay. I might write stuff for actors, maybe, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. I don't think I... Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love the uh, idea of being able to express in some way like that. And I think writing was, uh, ended up being sort of a, a, um, a strength for me, something that, mm -hmm. that, that kind of clicked for me. Do you enjoy being on the air? I mean, is that something you love or is it something that has a shelf life? I think it has a shelf life. I don't think I'll do it forever, um, for sure. I, I, I like being on the air when there's important things to talk about. I mean, you know, I guess it's like that in, in most things in life. I mean, uh, uh, we don't always, I, I think for any job, I don't think we like all aspects of it. You know, there's things about it that we have to endure. Um, so, you know, when you work for a 24-hour news network, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things you're, you end up talking about. Like right now, I love my job. I think it's really important. I think that it's, uh, it's, um, it feels like it's got purpose to it. Um, but I, I, I didn't pine a way to do this sort of work. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, the writing was the, was the common denominator. And through the writing, sort of that writing medium became a broadcast medium. Mm. What about you, Sunil? What would you, what would <laughs> yeah, you be I doing? Probably, I probably do one-on-one -on -one conversations on air, like kind of mm. like a Larry, Larry King. Mm, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Who would win in Jeopardy? Sunday. <laughs> For sure, Sunday. Yeah, Thank I you. think I, I, I'd like, I, I retain a lot of useless stuff in my mind, you know, I think. I don't know. Who's more adventurous? Ooh, that's, that's, that's got to be Sunday. I think we're both I'd pretty like, adventurous. I'd like to say I take you after him, but he's more adventurous. I'm getting there. <laughs> what if you're in the woods? Okay. Who are you leaning on for survival? <laughs> You know, I'm talking Sanjay. nature nature stuff. Price price still Sanjay. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing, Sanjay? This reminds me of a flat tire story in San Francisco once. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go very well. I'm like, oh brother, brother, what would you have done if I wasn't here right now? <laughs> no cell phone signal. He's like, so where 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 exactly is a spare? I'm like, dude, seriously, it's in the trunk. <laughs> I don't right, see it. I'm like, lift that all mat. Right. <laughs> like, all right. Ask an answer. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because technology, it's always trying to sort of make life easier. And it feels uh, like yeah. the, it, the father of invention is laziness in a strange way. I mean, it's like we're always trying to make life a little bit easier. And we've That's forgotten true. how to do the things that we should know how to do. We can call AAA or push OnStar or whatever nowadays, you know? Totally. Oh God, so many questions, but we, we, we gotta, we gotta get going. Okay. Well, before we do this, I just want to say thank you guys for coming on because this has yeah. been such a, a joy. So a fun. This was so much fun. I can talk to you guys for hours. And I, all I ask is uh, uh, when you go on the air, just do one of these. Okay. <laughs> be, just do one of those. And I know that you know, you're thinking about me. <laughs> no, I got to do something else. I, I'm not allowed to touch my face. I, this is a crazy oh, thing because you keep saying, don't touch your face. And yeah. then all I want to do is touch my face when yeah. I'm on TV. So I need I, another signal. 
Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna how about I'm gonna, just ra- just raise the roof? You know, just I'm be like. Whoop, whoop. I'm gonna point my pen at you. I'm gonna yeah. point my pen. At you. <laughs> okay, perfect. Watch in, watch in 20 minutes. I'm gonna. Okay, point the pen. Good. <laughs> okay, so here's the last question we asked. So, it's a two part question. The first is, what is one thing that you wish you could alleviate from your sibling that you think would be in the in the betterment of their for, for the betterment of their life? Something you would wow. sort of take from them. And then the other question is, what is one thing that you wish you could emulate? I'm well, going to nominate you to go first. Okay. All right. I'll go first. Um, in terms of what I would take, I think Snail has an extraordinary ability to have a, a very, very beautiful ease with life. I think he, he seems like he's just gracefully moving through life. Um, it's, it's pretty to watch. It's like watching a, a great athlete or a great performer. Not that I'm saying you're, this is athletic or performance. I'm just saying your approach to life is, is, is you, you make it look easy. You really do. Um, which I've, I've always had trouble with that. I feel like I, I, clunk my way through and you know I'm, I'm stutter starting all the time and tripping over my own feet and you know, I can't quite gallop you know to get to a run um, I think I think in terms of what I would would alleviate for you I think it would be you know any sense of, of self-doubt uh, or or insecurity we all have insecurities um, to the extent that I've been the cause of any of that for you, for all the reasons that we joke about, but you know, I, I would love to alleviate that for you. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess that would be it. Maybe I should have gone first. You didn't alleviate it, man. You just, you just make me more self conscious. <laughs> 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 that's really really funny <laughs> psych in terms of <laughs> mic drop in terms of in terms of emulating i think that there there's there's so much i mean i think this answer won't do it justice but i i a long time ago i read a book called feeling good and the the one of the uh, it's a psychology book by a guy named david burns and one of the things that he wrote in the book is that uh, we need to treat the world as if we all have one unit of worth, no matter, no matter who, who that person is, no matter even if that person is your boss, that person is worth the same as you, you're worth the same as them, the person serving you food, the person you're serving food to, we all have one unit of human worth. And I think Sanjay has always sort of just gotten that at his, at his deepest, deepest level no matter no matter where he is what what he's doing um just this I- idea that we are all in this together um you can say that um but to believe it at your core to have that be what fuels you every single day i think is a really special thing and and he's always had that and i've always admired that um and i and i want to i want i want i want more of that um mm. genuinely um for me and for everybody um I, I think I think the thing that I would alleviate, I think, is is um, you know, Sunday and I talk about this sometimes. I think, and I think that uh, we've both evolved with this feeling of of needing to leave a legacy. Um, you know, I think that there's always so much pressure of like, what, how will the world remember you? And I think, um, you know, if there's if there's um, 
if there's anything I think that we kind of both realize together now um, is that what we really have is our kids. Like those are the people who are going to be um, talking about us more than anything else. Those are the stories that are going to be shared. Those are the things that matter most to us. And and and, and I and I and, and any pressure at all to leave a legacy um, is the thing that I feel like I would want to alleviate. Whatever's left of that. Love. That's awesome. Oh, guys. This was awesome, guys. Thank you so, so much. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson, Oliver Hudson, and Sim Sarna. Supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, a.k.a. Uncle Mark. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.